We're in the midst of a fairly new series on relationships. And so we've talked about, we've spent the past two Sundays talking primarily about marriage. Uh, but as we continue to talk about relationships, we come to the realization that there are those among us who are not married. So we'll take some time today to see what the Bible says about singleness and to the singles uh, among us and to all of us who love and care for those who are, who are single, I guess. You know, I don't know, I was thinking this week, I don't know that I've ever actually heard a sermon specifically on singleness. I'm sure I did at some point, but... Um, you know, I don't, I don't remember, and I think that's, that's maybe because most pastors are married, and maybe it seems a little presumptive uh, to preach on an issue that's often frustrating for the people in that situation, thinking uh, that you, um, you just don't get it because you're married. And so I think there's some hesitation there, but it, it, I think it's you know, not appropriate. I think we should be teaching the full counsel of the Word of God, of course. So I think this is an important topic. Uh, because every church has people in it who aren't married for you know, different stages of life, from kids and teens to younger never-marrieds to older never-marrieds to those who are single again for different reasons. And the Bible uh, speaks uh, to all these things. And so today we're going to kind of look at all of Romans chapter 7, but we're going to read here as our, as our sermon text and kind of focus in on the second half uh, from verse 25 down through 40. So give great attention uh, to the reading of the, the very Word of God. Romans chapter 7, verse 25 says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious, anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, will do, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. Let me pray for us. Um, Father in heaven, this is a, you know, a, a long and, and in parts hard to understand passage. I pray that you would help us to first understand your word 
And second, apply it rightly to our lives. But then third, give Christ all the glory for what we've read and how we, how we live. God, help us to see Jesus as we study your word today. For he is our hope and, and is our salvation. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so chapter 7 of Corinthians is a, is a section of this letter. So Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians. And here in this section, he's answering some issues that they've brought up in a letter to him. It's referenced in another part of this letter that they had sent him a letter. And so they brought up some concerns and issues and questions. And here in chapter 7, he's answering mainly two of those concerns. It's noted by the words here. Uh, you see it in verse 25 and, and also in chapter one verse I mean chapter seven verse one where he says now concerning the matters about which you wrote and then in 25 says now concerning the betrothed so they've asked questions or brought up questions or maybe it's you know maybe even you know tried to counter some of his teaching on these things and so he's giving clarity on uh, these different issues so I'm going to walk us through most of this chapter so we can kind of better understand the verses in the second half that apply uh, maybe more directly to to singleness. All right, in chapter 7 1, we see the first issue here that this chapter addresses. He says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. All right, so Paul isn't saying that that's what he thinks. He's saying this is the issue that you brought up. Somewhere in this letter, they've communicated that there are those in Corinth who are saying it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And so he's quoting or, or summarizing at least something that was in the letter they wrote. Now here's what we have to understand about Corinth. Corinth was a sexually depraved place during this time. In this letter, Paul has already addressed Christians who were arguing that their freedom in Christ meant that they could spend their free time with prostitutes. And Paul's already said, no. Not an option for those who are in Christ. You can't unite your body with those who are, who are prostitutes. Um, he also addressed an issue of a young man uh, of incest, a young man who was sleeping with his dad's wife. He talks about how that's inappropriate. Uh, you know, and we go, duh, but no, we live in a culture that's sexually depraved as well. Um, you know, the, these things shock us on one level and shouldn't shock us on another, but that's what's going on in Corinthians and in, in Corinth. The understanding that we get from the general tone of the letter is that their sexuality was just in general out of control. Pursuing pleasure, doing what they wanted to do, when they wanted to, with whoever they wanted to do it, there were basically no rules. It's sexuality out of control. So what has happened in Corinth among Christians is that they've seen the destruction that is left in the wake of the rampant sexual sin in their city, and they have just decided that it would be better if people just stopped having sexual relations completely, even those who are married. They're going, sexual relations end up causing problems, Just let's just all stop. And Paul's like, okay, that's dumb. Let's get some perspective here on what's, what's right and what's appropriate and what's wrong and inappropriate regarding sexual relations. And so Paul counters that thinking by saying that each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, this isn't a command to get married. He isn't saying everyone go get a wife, every woman go, every man go get a wife, every husband go get a woman. What he's saying is those of you who have a wife, you should have your wife and only your wife. Those, you women who have a husband, you should have your husband. That's good, but only your husband. And so he's not saying, oh, you should all get married. He's going to approach that in a minute, that he wishes many would remain single because of the anxiety and the cares. We'll talk about that in a minute, that, that those things that come along with marriage. But here he's saying, look, if you're married, quit fooling around. 
It's bringing destruction upon you. So if you have a wife, then for all means, have your wife. But only your wife. Same for the woman. He's giving restrictions, but he's not saying that sexual relations are evil. They're a gift from God for him and for his glory. He's saying enjoy that, but within the boundaries that God has drawn for these relationships. And so, you know, Paul is screaming, stop sleeping around. If you're married, you should have one person uh, that you engage in these activities with, and only one. The rest of this paragraph is arguing that because of the temptation to actually go and sleep around, you should be having regular relations with your spouse. Verses 3 and 4 saying that each spouse should be able to request intimacy to ward off temptation. So if any of you are struggling with temptation, you should be able to come to your spouse who loves you and say, this is the right way to express this. May I have the privilege of that, please? He said, that's good. That's what's appropriate. That's part of the gift of marriage is to help you ward off sexual temptation. And he's saying, you know, this is true to the point that you should only take a break from oft-occurring relations when you agree to do so, to devote yourselves to prayer for a limited time. Now, we know that protecting from temptation and for prayer are not the only or even the primary reason for a married couple to have relations, but in the hypersexual word world of Corinth, Paul's saying this is a deterrent to sin in your culture. Paul never says these things are evil. They're good, but within these boundaries. And so Paul's helping them understand these things rightly. But then in verse 6, Paul brings up the issue of singleness. He says that he wishes that everyone could be like him, unmarried and celibate. Look at what he says. He says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I that all were as I myself am. So he's single. He's saying, I wish you could all be like me, free from those worries and the conflicts that come from those sorts of things. He said, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Some have the gift of celibacy, some clearly don't. So he's going to give us instruction for, for both of those people. Now, some commentators speculate that Paul must have been married previously. Um, because he understands these issues in marriage on a fairly deep and complicated level, it seems. Maybe he's just a good pastor and he's involved in the lives of the people around him. But the speculation is that Paul may have been married before he became a Christian. So he may have been married to this Jewish woman who, when he decided to follow the Messiah, she said, no thanks. And he did what this passage says, when the, the unbeliever is not willing to be with you, be free from them. So that's a possibility. We don't know. Paul never tells us that. But he does understand these issues. Of course, it may just be that God's revelation is coming through him. It gives him an understanding that maybe he hasn't experienced. So you know, we don't know all those things. But we do notice that what Paul, Paul says that what he has just said is a concession, not a command. And what, what, so what does that mean? Look, Paul is aware that he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But what he's communicating to the Corinthians is that he doesn't have a command from the mouth of Jesus about this issue. You know, in, in other places, he will see that as he goes to this passage and says, not I, but the Lord. And then he says, but not the Lord, but I. We'll talk about that when we get to those spots. But here he's saying, look, this is, this is, I think this is a good thing, but this isn't a command. Because if he gives it as a command to be as he is, then everyone, no one could get married. But he says, no, no, no just think about, think about this as an option for you. Don't assume everybody has to get married. Because the, the, the thing that most people do get married at some point. We'll see that later. I think I read a stat this week that said 
Um, it, the people, for people who live to be 70 years old, 96% of them are married at least once in their lifetime in, in the United States. So m most people at least try out marriage at some point. Wish that those who get married would stay married, but that doesn't always work, right? We've talked about that. But you know, Paul's saying, look, think about this maybe as an option for you. Don't think just because the culture emphasizes marriage that that's the way you have to go. Celibacy and singleness is an option for even those who are godly. So he's going to, like I said, we're going we're to get to this thing. So there must have been some in Corinth who were challenging Paul's reasoning on, on these sorts of things. Maybe asking for him to prove that Jesus said this stuff. So what Jesus, he points out when we get down the, the, down the text here a little bit, this is an actual command from Jesus. And then other stuff he goes, look, I don't have a command, but I know this is right as an apostle of the Lord. So he'll, like I said, he'll, he'll bear those things out. We'll see it. Paul goes on to say that it's better for those who are not married and for the widows to remain single like him. He gives no reason for that at this point. And he does not say any, um, and he does not say that if they are tempted beyond what they, I'm sorry, he does say if they are tempted beyond what they control, it would be better, better for them to marry than to burn with passion. So he says, look, I wish you could all be like me. Paul seems to be able to control himself in the face of sexual temptation. He says, I wish you could all be like me. He says, but I know some of you burn with passion, and if that's the case, then by all means pursue marriage. Doesn't mean you're going to get married, find a spouse, any of those things, but you're, you should pursue that because your, your passions are only expressed rightly within the bounds of marriage. So you're free to pursue that, pursue righteousness in this area. But then Paul changes direction a little here and speaks to those that are married. Like I said, at this point, he refers to what the Lord has said. He says, not I, but the Lord, meaning that we know in this particular case, Jesus has spoken about this issue. We saw that in Matthew 19 when we read it a few weeks ago where he, he addressed this issue. He says that he says that a wife shouldn't separate from her husband and the husband shouldn't divorce his wife. He also knows that the divorce, which occurs without biblical reason, which we saw last week, only includes adultery and desertion, which also includes abuse and some of those sorts of issues. Uh, but he says here that if a Christian divorces for any reason other than those, then the only option for future marriage is to reconcile with their spouse. We saw that Jesus has already addressed that. And so Paul's pointing that reality out. Jesus has actually said something about this. Um, and we referred to verses 12 through 16 last week. I'm not going to go back over those things. When we talked about desertion being an allowable reason for divorce, we we kind of came to this text and pointed that out, but that's there if you want to revisit it. I'm not going to get back into that. Of course, here he says, you know, to, well, in the beginning of verse 12, he says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. He doesn't mean that this isn't scripture-level stuff. He's saying the Lord, Jesus, because I think people were challenging him. Well, did Jesus actually say that? And he's going, well, this Jesus didn't actually say like he did the other. But that doesn't mean this isn't right. He say, look. I don't have a command from Jesus about this, but as an apostle, I'm still able to speak. And when he gets to the end of the passage and he says, I think that I too have the Spirit of God, he's saying, look, Jesus isn't the only one that speaks authoritatively. The apostles speak on these issues. You need to pay attention to this. And so Paul's teaching about these hard issues, and he's being honest about where his wisdom comes from in these things. Uh, in the next paragraph after that, the one beginning in verse 17, Paul goes on a tangent of sorts, but he makes the point that everyone should follow the path that God calls them with contentment. He gives some examples, but by doing so, he sets up verses 25 and following, which we, we read earlier, which directly address the issue of singleness amongst Christians. Look, in verse 17, he says, Only let each person live the life 
that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. He said, this is my rule in all the churches. And he gives some practical examples about just the things, some of the issues in the church about how people were living. He says, look, don't feel like you've got to jump through hoops in order to make yourself righteous before man. Trust in Jesus. You know, for he says, if, if you were circumcised when you came, then if you're fine with circumcised, if you're uncircumcised, remain uncircumcised. It doesn't matter. What matters is do you trust in Jesus? And so he's saying this in the midst of the context of marriage where I'm sure there were some people saying, well, if you're going to be a good Christian, you've got to be married. Jesus said, be, I mean, God said, be fruitful and multiply. You can't do that if you're not married. You know, those sorts of things. But while that is a command that's in general for all of mankind, it doesn't mean that every single person within mankind is going to be fruitful and multiply. That's a general overarching command. There are those who are single who aren't going to be, and that doesn't mean they're disobedient. It means God hasn't called them to that specific obedience uh, in, in that sense. All right. Paul says that concerning those who are betrothed, the Greek word translated here refers to virgins, male or female, uh, who were of an age to get married, implying that they were seeking or hoping to get married. Hence, uh, the ESV translates that word betrothed. These are people who are inclined to want to pursue marriage. So some of them may already be in the shoot with someone, kind of moving towards marriage with a particular potential mate, or it may just be people who are saying, look, I really want to be married. Okay, so we've got kind of two categories there, but they all, these are people who have a desire to be married but aren't yet. That's who he's addressing here. Uh, he says that in view of the current distress, it is good for a person to remain as, as he or she is. All right, so wait, current distress. What's he talking about there? Um, let me see that in, in, um, in verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Okay, so what's the current distress? Well, the commentators have kind of deduced from things we know from the letter to Corinth and some other things going on, that there was probably a great famine during this age where there were some rich people who were doing really well. They had, had stores and reserves and were doing great. But for the vast majority of the people, they were becoming poor and poor and struggling to feed their families and take care of their, you know, the, the people in their households and those sorts of things. So there's this anxiety about what's going on in culture. The husbands in particular were anxious about, can I provide for my family? Because of the, the famine that was going on. We see that in 1 Corinthians 11 where he's talking about coming to the table. And he says, look, some of you rich people are showing up at the table and you're just having a party. And the poor people who are already hungry aren't even getting anything to eat. And he, he says, that, that this isn't right. <laughs> so we see that sort of addressed one place where it's sort of addressed and alluded to. But what he's saying here is that, you know, in light of this distress, he said, maybe you should just remain single if that's where you are. Uh, so what Paul seems to be saying here is that in view of the fact that marriage is already difficult, especially when it comes to this added burden of providing food for your wife and for kids and those sorts of things, that in a time of fat, famine, it's better to avoid that stress so that you can actually spend more time in ministry to those that are hurting from the effects of the famine. That's, the art, that's in general the argument that Paul's making here. He's saying, look, let's spend our energy in serving and loving those who are already hurting around us. Maybe this will pass and circumstances might change. He said, this is the current distress that we find ourselves in. But then he clarifies that he's not saying that if you are married, you should leave your wife to serve other people better. Because I'm sure some heard that and went, well, I'd be happy to be done with the, the, the wife that I have. I can use, I got this spiritual excuse. I can say I'm done with her to go serve people. He said, no, no, no. If you're married, stay married. 
So Paul's not letting us get away with an easy outs on anything here. He says, um, he's suggesting that men should consider not taking a wife in the time of distress. But Paul is also going to great pains here to emphasize that neither marriage nor singleness are to be looked down upon. In verse 28, here he says, that if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. So in verse 28, he emphasizes that those who do marry in any time are not sinning, Neither is a woman who gets married, but it does bring more anxiety or different anxiety into your life, worldly troubles of sorts. In verses 29 through 31, he gives us a series of poetic statements that show that the Christian is not to approach life in the same way that those around them in the culture approach life. He says, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Now here, he's not advocating celibacy or divorce or separation or neglect or any of those things. I think what he is saying in a poetic way is that Christians should not see marriage as something that gives our lives ultimate meaning. He said, look, don't think that getting married is going to save you, going to bring the the satisfaction and joy, make your life complete that only Jesus can do. He's saying don't make your marriage an idol. He goes through these other issues. Don't make these things, the things that the world says are of ultimate importance. Don't let them become of ultimate importance to you. They're valuable. Marriage is a valuable thing. You should be faithful in your marriage, all those sorts of things. But don't let it drive who you are. Don't think that getting married or having a good marriage makes you whole, brings this glorious fulfillment to you. Only Jesus can do that. We've talked before about the danger of putting that pressure on a marriage. When you say to your spouse, you're responsible for my happiness, for my joy, for my contentment, for my... that God gave you to me to make me happy, you're putting a weight on that relationship that it's not meant to bear. No, God was, gave us Jesus to bring completeness and fulfillment to our lives. All the other good gifts are on top of that, to, that, to serve that end, but not to be that end, if that makes sense. To not be the, the ultimate thing. And so I think he's saying that for the Christian, note he's addressing that to, to brothers um, there at the beginning in verse 29. Uh, he says, This is what I mean, brothers. So he's talking here to Christians, those who believe. That he's saying, you know, that it will not be long before we stand before our Savior in glory. He says, the, You know, this is what I mean, brother. The appointed time has grown very short. He's saying, I don't think Paul's saying that the end times are, you know, that Jesus is coming back next week or something before the Corinthians die or anything. But he's saying, look, we're in the last days. The picture, you know, the scripture refers to those days between Jesus' ascension and his return as the last days, the last time in which, you know, we'll, we'll spend on earth and in this state. And so he's saying, look, we're in the last days. We're going home soon to what is ultimate, what is glorious. Don't allow these things to distract from that glory. Uh, and so it's, it's not going to be long. And so we'll realize at that point, when we do get to glory, that we've allowed many idols to have a foothold in our lives, including good things uh, like marriage. So he's not saying marriage is a bad thing, but that we err when we make it an idol that we think we have to have in order to have a full and meaningful life. But that's common in our day. This is something we, as a culture, have bought into. It's not just Corinth. We've bought into this as well. I, I hear it from single people all the time that they think their life would finally have a purpose if they could just get married. 
But that thinking's wrong. It leads to so many problems. First, it implies that the situation that you're in right now is not God's best plan for your life. But God is sovereign over our lives. If He has us in a certain state of marriage or singleness or whatnot, it's where He wants us. He's brought us to that place. And so when we're thinking like this, we're forgetting that God is our good Father who always works things out for our good so that if He is sovereignly ordained that at this moment in time that we're single, then we can only deduce that being single is the very best thing for us at this moment. Uh, you know, in the months or years ahead, God may change our situation, but we need to stop looking to a situational status to indicate whether our lives are full in any given moment and trust that God has a purpose for us in every actual moment. You know, when we're single, we need to be careful not to buy into these lies of the culture. Even our Christian culture tells us. I know I've bought into some lies that, at different points in my life. I've probably even said some of these things. If I said some of these things to you, I'm sorry. Um, I'm going to illustrate this by reading a passage from an article that Paige Benton Brown wrote while she was working in college ministry about probably 25 or so years ago. So surrounded by singles who are wanting to be married, doing college ministry. You know, these girls are graduating. She was a, a minister with RUF, which is our college, our denomination's college ministry. So she's doing ministry with all these singles who want to be married. She was single, wanting to be married herself. And um, I actually stole the title of my sermon from the title of her article, Singled Out for Good. That was the title of the article. You can Google that um, or ask me and I'll, I'll send it to you. But she talks about the things that our culture says to single people uh, in, in these two paragraphs. Let me, I'm just going to read to you what she says. She says, warped theology is at the heart of attempts to explain singleness. For example, people might say, as soon as you're satisfied with God alone, He'll bring someone special into your life. As though God's blessings are ever earned by our contentment. It says, people might say, you're too picky. As though God is frustrated by our fickle whims and needs broader parameters in which to work. Or someone may say, as a single, you can commit yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord's work, as though God requires emotional martyrs to do His work, of which marriage must be no part. She says that you know, someone might say, or maybe has said to her, before you can marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you someone wonderful. As though God grants marriage as a second blessing to the satisfactorily sanctified. You see the foolishness in this? The next paragraph, she says this. She says, accepting singleness, whether temporary or permanent, does not hinge on speculation about answers God has not given to our list of whys, but rather on celebration of the life he has given. I am not single because I am too spiritually unstable to possibly deserve a husband, nor because I am too spiritually mature to possibly need one. I am single because God is so abundantly good to me because this is his best for me. And then she says this, listen, it is a cosmic impossibility that anything can be better for me right now than being single. Yeah, she starts the whole article. Oh, I should have brought her with me this time because I'm not going to get it right. She starts the whole article by saying that if she had known what she knows as a single woman in her 20s wishing she was married, that she would have taken little Bobby up on his offer for marriage in second grade. <laughs> She said, because he was definitely the catch of all catches then. And she said, so first graders, carpe diem. You know, yeah. So, but yeah, so from someone who longs to be married, say, look, 
it isn't necessarily going to solve all our problems. God may or may not take us to that point, but can we not be satisfied that God loves us and has us in this place for His, for our good and His glory? I would also add some other things that I've heard, at least implied, uh, to encourage you. Look, if you're single, being single does not mean you're a second-class citizen. I think the church has often been guilty of painting that picture. If that's the case, if you've heard that message, I'm sorry. Getting married doesn't mean that you've finally grown up or that your life is finally starting. No, you're alive now. You can live. Being single doesn't mean that you're immature. Being single doesn't mean that God is punishing you, that you're outside of His will. Look, if being single were a curse, then God has some explaining to do, specifically because single people are in good company. Jesus, Paul, contemporary examples, John Stott, Amy Carmichael. We can go on and on and on about the godly people who live sacrificial lives of love, who've given themselves away for others, but were never married. Being single isn't a curse. Starting in verse 32 here, Paul addresses the, these anxieties that life brings. He says, you know, many people buy into the belief that married life eases anxieties. But Paul points out that while the unmarried man is anxious about how to please the Lord, possibly they're referring to sexual temptation and struggles with self-control and those sorts of things, I think, going back to the beginning of this chapter. Uh, he says, but the married life brings different anxieties, especially concerning worldly things. Like as we mentioned, the pressure to provide food and clothing and shelter in the midst of a famine. Anxieties different, of different types, but still anxieties. He says, plus the, the married Christian also, on top of pleasing their spouse, also wants to please the Lord. And so our, our time is divided, as he mentioned earlier. And so don't think that getting married is going to solve all your problems and all your anxiety. It may actually add to the burdens that you carry in some ways. He points out that the unmarried woman also is anxious and wanting to please the Lord in body and spirit, also having illicit desires that she longs to have fulfilled. So, but the, the married woman also has anxiety when it comes to the desire to please her husband. And so in verse 25, Paul closes this paragraph by stating that this is wisdom. Everyone should do what they feel the Lord is leading them to do regarding marriage. But that whatever they do, they should do so with a mindset of doing what will help them be the most devoted to the Lord. See, look, when you're deciding whether to stay single or to get married, think about how it affects your relationship with God. Is this going to help me be more holy or less holy? Pursue the thing that's going to bring the most glory to God. So for some people, that may be singleness. For some, it may be marriage. You know, I mentioned this last week. Paul refers to it at the end of this passage further down that for, for any Christian who desires to get married, the only command that we get about who to marry is that we should marry in the Lord. You're commanded to marry only Christians. You can't get married to a non-Christian and be obedient to, to God. So you have to marry in the Lord, as it says here. And I think verse 35 also helps us see that the, the Christian that we marry should be someone who actually encourages us to be devoted to the Lord. So not just someone who goes to church or seems to know God in this distant way, but someone who actually loves the Lord and is going to serve and love you to help you love the Lord. They aren't seeking to draw us away from the Lord to kind of serve them and their needs. 
but to, to be in a partnership with us, that together we might be more equipped to bring glory to God in every moment of our lives. And like I said, you know, most, most people, uh, chances are most people are going to be married at some point. And so Paul isn't wanting to discourage marriage, but he does want us to entertain the thought of marriage with open eyes and an honest approach to what marriage truly is. The last two paragraphs here of this chapter remind us that there are some like Paul who actually have the gift of celibacy. Then don't let culture, whose emphasis may be on marriage, dissuade you from maybe a calling that you have to be celibate. He starts by reiterating that if a young man is in relationship with a young woman and his passions are strong and he has an uncontrollable desire to be married, it's not sinful for him to be married. It's better to be married than live in sin. But he also states that if a man is in a relationship where his desire for this young woman is under control, he can live a holy life without being married, then he will do well to do so. So it's an interesting contrast that Paul's given us here. You know, I think about this issue when I'm conducting premarital counseling. If a couple comes into our counseling sessions and seem to have no desire to touch each other, they come and they sit on opposite sides of the couch, the room, and there's nothing there. I, it gives me pause. It's not a red flag. It's not a, a full stop. But it makes me want to dig a little deeper and see what's going on. Why is there not seem to be a desire to, you know, be on top of each other here? Because that, that's normal amongst people who are trying to get married. So, you know, so I have to stop and ask questions. Is it because there's no desire there for each other? That would be a problem. Maybe you get married out of pressure from your family or from culture or society or something. You know, or maybe you're already struggling so much that you've got to, you, maybe you've decided for good reasons we're just going to stay away from each other until we get married. Or maybe you're just guilty and you're in front of the preacher and you need some help staying away from each other and yeah, all these things, we've got to figure out what's going on. But if there's no desire to be together physically, or there's a lack of desire there, I'd say, wait, what, what's driving this? It may be a good thing, it may still be fine, but, but what's going on? Because Paul's saying, if you can get through this life without being married, then don't, don't take on the troubles of marriage if you can bear up under it. Because there are anxieties that are unique to that. You know, Paul concludes here that marriage is good. Don't marry, get married just to get married. Uh, like I said, as people often do under pressure from others or from society in general. But at the end here, Paul returns to the issue of permanency in marriage. He's warning people not to enter into marriage lightly. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, he says. The opposite is true as well. That the man is... Uh, bound to the woman as long as she lives. But I think Paul is warning the woman here who might be super eager to get married that she should be careful who she marries. But then he also to remind her that if her husband dies, she's free to remarry, but only in the Lord, of course. But Paul thinks that she would be happier to remain as she is, likely meaning that she would find joy in being free from the anxieties that come along with marriage. So Paul's covering all these things. He's sort of redundant in some of this. We've covered that redundancy. He keeps circling back around to basically, if you can be like I am, then you should be like I am. A single celibate. But the world often tells us, particularly through merit movies and music, that, that being single, and I think particularly being young and single, is a time to sow your wild oats. That's an old phrase, right? I don't mean to, to get all your youthful curiosity satisfied out in the world, that singleness is a time for you to just let yourself go. 
I have a friend who's a Lutheran pastor who told me that in his particular denomination, they've just given up on trying to do ministry to college students. They've just resigned themselves to the fact that they're just going to do what they want to for four years. We're wasting our time and money there. How stupid is that? Sorry. That's not the picture that Scripture paints for us. The life of a Christian, according to Scripture, is to be a life full of the pursuit of holiness. No matter where we're at, no matter what state or situation we find ourselves in, the expectation that the Scripture lays out for us is that we should love the life that God has given us. And all throughout that life, whether married or single, young or old, healthy or sick, whatever situation we find ourselves in, that all throughout our lives we are to live in a manner worthy of the Lord, meaning we're to seek to please Him, to bring Him glory. And so we don't sit around waiting to get to adulthood and marriage or some goal out there in order to, so we can finally pursue holiness. No, wherever we are in our lives, God is calling us to pursue holiness now, to live for His glory now, to do the work of His kingdom now, to do anything other than seek to live holy lives for His gospel, I mean, for His glory, is to deny the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that God loved us so much that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That truth should compel us towards holy living no matter what's going on in our lives. It should compel us toward loving our neighbor so much so that we would seek to control our sexual desires so that we're not leading those around us to enter into living out our sinful desires with us. We should be seeking such holiness no matter how strong our desires are, our desires are that outside of marriage we don't pursue those things. To help us be holy and to help those around us be holy. What freedom that God through Paul gives us in this passage we looked at today. There's freedom here for all of us. If, if you desire marriage, seek to be married, although there's no guarantees that may come your way. But you're free to pursue that. But at the same time, he assures us that being single isn't a curse. It's just a stage of life, possibly a lifelong stage. But it's just a situation in which we are called to live holy lives. We're called to seek obedience to the Lord. He doesn't discourage us from calling out to the Lord with a desire to be married. If you desire to be married, then great, pursue that. Ask God to give that to you. That's fine. But he also doesn't chastise people for wanting to be married. He, even though he encourages contentment at every moment, he doesn't paint an incredibly rosy picture of marriage or singleness while also not making either situation seem unbearable. He's just honest about the anxieties that come in different stages of life. That's refreshing to me. And here's why. It's because it takes the pressure off. It, it takes the pressure off the situation. It takes the pressure off the temptation to fake that we are content or perfect or satisfied in every particular situation in which we find ourselves in. If you want to be married, then pursue marriage. You can actually admit, I would like to be married. If you're content being single, you can actually rest in that and say, I know my mom and my grandmama want grandkids, but I'm actually content being single. That's okay. It takes the pressure off the expectations that society may put on us, those around us may put on us. It reminds us that our true and perfect satisfaction is only found in Christ and will actually only be fully experienced in the life to come. Our, our days here are short, Paul says. That's hope that, hey, 
all my desires are actually going to be completely satisfied one day. Not in the way that maybe they would be satisfied here on earth, but in a fuller sense. Because I'm actually going to be in Christ and all my desires will be fulfilled. Isn't that great? This is glorious. We can rejoice that the appointed time has grown very short. So you know, what does that mean? We're, what it means is we're going home soon. Eternal satisfaction bought with the blood of Christ awaits us soon. This life is fleeting. Right? The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord stands forever, but everything else dies. In the strength of the Holy Spirit, the one whom the Lord has given us to strengthen us and help us. My hope for us is that we can live all of our days, however long, in whatever situation, and whatever God calls us to, for Him and His glory, because He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our obedience. He's worthy and He's good. He's good. And as Paige Benton Brown said, it's cosmically impossible for Him to be anything other than good and to care for His children. May we rest in that hope. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank You for being our God. Would You help us to rest in the fact that You are for us and not against us? That in whatever situation You've placed us in, You've placed us there for Your glory, for our good, that we might pursue You in those moments, in each and every moment, in each and every stage of life, in each and every situation in which we find ourselves, that we would be pursuing You. And that we'd be content, satisfied that where You have us is where You want us. Even as we're honest about the fact that we may want our situation to change. Help us not to do that in a complaining spirit, but in a hopeful spirit. That no matter what you bring, it is exactly what you would have for us. And that we can rest. That's your will for our lives. God, I pray for those who are single among us. Would you help protect them from sexual temptation? For those who desire to be married, would you provide a spouse? Pray for those who are married. That they would be satisfied with the life and the, the wife, the husband that you've given them given us and God that you would help us to live holy upright and godly lives in this present age for your glory saying yes to righteousness saying no to sinfulness and that we might do good works for you and for your glory fill us with your spirit convict us of our sin drive us to the cross marriage childbearing none of those things are going to save us you might save us through those things God but it's Jesus who saves us, who redeems us. And it's in His glorious name we pray. Amen.